0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 504th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is probably the world's most famous living film critic. For many people, he was the internet movie database before the advent of the internet. The author of more than a dozen important books on film, he is best known for the exhaustive movie guide that he updated dozens of times between 1969 and 2014 on the cover of which appeared his bearded and bespectacled face and his name above the title from 1986 on, and which the New York Times described in 1996 as the go-to choice for both film geeks and casual couch potatoes, and in 1997 as the Bible of American Cinephiles. And he also reviewed movies and interviewed just about every major filmmaker and star in front of a massive national television audience as the on-air film critic for Entertainment Tonight between 1982 and 2012. He is someone who even the most casual movie buff came to know. He made a cameo in Gremlins 2, he was mentioned on an episode of The Simpsons, his guide was referenced on an episode of The Sopranos and in the film Greenberg, and he read clues on Jeopardy. But he always maintained his cred with serious cinephiles as well. Perhaps the only film critic who has ever been invited to become a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, he is also a longtime member and two time past president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, a voting member of the National Film Registry, and a member of the board of directors of the National Film Preservation Foundation. As the Los Angeles Times once wrote, Los Angeles has no lack of film critics, but there isn't one who is more respected and admired than he is. Need further proof? He was feted with the Anthology Film Archive's Preservation Award in 1993, the ICG Publicist's Awards Press Award in 1997, the Annie Awards June Foray Award in 2002, the American Society of Cinematographers Bud Stone Award of Distinction in 2005, the Telluride Film Festival Silver Medallion Award in 2007, the National Board of Review's William K. Everson Film History Award in 2010, Comic-Con's Inkpot Award in 2013, the George Eastman House's Light and Motion Award for Advocacy in 2014, Los Angeles Film Critics Association special citation celebrating his movie guide in 2015, and the Turner Classic Movies Robert Osborne Award, presented to him by Warren Beatty in 2022. Plus, the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, at which he has moderated conversations with the recipients of its Modern Master Award for decades, in 2015 renamed that honor the Malton Modern Master Award. All not bad for a kid from Teaneck, New Jersey. I'm talking, of course, about Leonard Malton. Over the course of our conversation at Malton's home in Sherman Oaks, California, which is packed to the gills with movie books and memorabilia, and which he shares with his wife of nearly a half century, Alice, his daughter and podcasting partner, Jesse, Jesse's husband, and a 21 month old granddaughter. The 72-year-old and I discussed the origins of his love affair with the movies and how he began writing about them in a serious way while still in grade school. How, when he was just 17, his movie guide came to be, and the ups and downs of its 45-year journey from there. What his life is like today, roughly a decade after he was first diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And what his outlook is for the future of the movies and film criticism, plus... Much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Leonard, thank you so much for doing this. Great to see you. And uh, always begin just at the very beginning, if we can. Um, Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living?
1: I am a native New Yorker. I have a lifetime credential for that because I was born in Manhattan in December of 1950. And when I was four, my my brother was born, and my parents moved us all out to the suburbs to Teaneck, New Jersey, mm-hmm. birthplace of Ricky Nelson. Okay, and just just <laughs> incidentally, uh, just five miles over the George Washington Bridge. Yeah, and so we spent a lot of time in New York, and I continued to spend a lot of time in New York. Yeah, uh, as I grew up. Any siblings? Uh, yeah, one younger brother. One younger brother. Um, my father was a special hearings officer for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, as it was then called. Okay. It was an interesting job, yeah. and, but it was a, a civil service job. So he was home for dinner every night, but, same yeah. time, and except for the phone calls he would get. yes, He was a soft touch. He helped people. He yeah. liked to help people. Right. And my mother had been a uh, singer, a nightclub singer, in her teens, wow. uh, with a stage mother, yeah. and uh, played the accordion and sang. And she joined the company of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel on Broadway after it had been playing a little while, but John Raitt was still in it. Wow. And she always talked about what a thrill it was to stand in the wings and watch him deliver soliloquy night after night.
0: Now, do you remember your first trip to the movies and and, uh, and also just generally why, if you can recall, from a very early age, I know we're very, you know, we're kind of enchanted by the movies. Why... So what was that first one, and why do you think you became uh, enamored with them? The
1: first memory I have is of my mother leading me by the hand into the Guild Theater, no longer there, which was behind Radio City Music Hall. It always seemed like a mistake or an (laughs) afterthought at best, uh, where I saw the last shot of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, reissue, of course. So the first thing I, I saw was... Snow White and and Prince Charming going into a golden, sunlit environment or backdrop. That's the image that's burned in my brain as the first one that I ever saw on a movie theater screen. Nice. But, of course, I'm a child of the TV, the first TV generation, uh, an authentic baby boomer. Yes. So uh, there was never not a television in my life. That means I grew up watching Laurel and Hardy every day, (laughs) The Little Rascals, every day. uh, Later, The Three Stooges, every day the Mickey Mouse Club when it came on every day, and then Walt Disney every week. And all of those things are still a
0: very active part of my, my, my life. Now, did your, you know, some parents tell their kids, get away from the TV, go outside, go play, go play sports. Uh, how did your parents feel about, from a very early age, you being in front of screens?
1: My mother did say, this is when I was like 12, I remember her saying one particular day, how would you go to the movies on a beautiful day like this? I said, well, I'm going to do it. And that's what I did. No, she was more concerned that I read nothing but comic books.
0: Uh, okay. And you actually, before criticism, before anything, you were interested in being a cartoonist, I read.
1: That was my first ambition, was to be uh, not, a, not an animator, yeah. but a, a, a cartoonist who did car- spot cartoons, as they called them, which now exists pretty much only in the New Yorker magazine. Right. Uh, Playboy magazine was the other holdout because Hugh Hefner wanted to be a cartoonist. Interesting. That's why he he had a uh, an abiding love for for them. And I wrote a fan letter to Charles M. Schulz and enclosed some of my drawings. And he sent back the nicest, personal, not a form letter, personal letter, with some good sound advice and an encouragement. And an original signed Peanuts daily page. That's amazing. Uh, and so I got to tell him that story 25 years later when I was hired by United, now it's called United Media, right. United Feature Syndicate. I interviewed him uh, for a video that would accompany a museum, a touring museum show on Peanuts' anniversary. And as I told him that story, he jumped out of his chair. We were in a studio. Yeah. He jumped out of his chair and said, we got to get something newer. <laughs> And he rifled through some uh, uh, Sunday pages and found one that he liked and signed it to me and Alice, my wife, and signed it Sparky, which was his nickname to friends. So he held a very special place in my heart. That's awesome.
0: Now, in terms of the burgeoning love of movies, was this something that was uh, genetic in the Malton family? I mean, I read that your dad was a Variety subscriber. Now, in Teaneck, New Jersey, I can't imagine there are too many people getting Variety.
1: Well... My uncle, his his brother, Bernard, died when I was a year and a half. And he inherited my uncle's uh, ASCAP estate. And my uncle was a studio pianist in New York who also composed songs. No hits, but some that were recorded by Fats Waller, by Ruth Edding, by Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. One of them had lyrics put to it and was recorded by Dean Martin wow. early on. So he still got royalty checks. It was a banner day in our household. When every year, once a year, Captain Kangaroo did some sort of routine to one of his novelty songs. That was network television. Yeah. We learned that, that was very important for upping your your points score on right, uh, right. an ASCAP. <laughs> and the other was Lawrence Welk, which was also right. network television. Right. So he liked to keep his uh, his hand in, so to speak. He was not in show business himself, but this was something he uh, he enjoyed reading about. And and my mom was still did. The occasional club date, mm-hmm. so there was that much show business in in the environment, yeah. and I I pored over those pages and got ink all over my hands because uh, that's the kind of newsprint that they used. Yeah, uh, but I, I I grew up reading Variety
0: Weekly Variety. Now the first of many of the many Leonard Malton publications, I believe, came out when you were just in fifth. Great. Can you explain what it was and how it evolved from there?
1: It was called the Bergen Bulletin. We lived in Bergen County, New Jersey. And my best friend at the time and I decided we wanted to express ourselves in some way, writing, drawing, whatever. And so the first one had a circulation of three... Because there was an original and two carbon copies. I don't think anybody today knows what carbon paper is, <laughs> but we used it. Right. And that then it just became the bulletin. And what
0: were you writing about essentially there?
1: Oh, anything and everything. Yeah. I wrote about what I was watching on TV or what was coming up with the movies. But pretty soon the focus shifted and I became a movie junkie.
0: Yeah. Can you take us through because from that early, you know, publication of various musings about all kinds of things? To just a few years later, when you're actually writing fanzines, which I think for people unfamiliar would basically be the equivalent of a a blog, I think you might say. Exactly. Today would be a blog. Yeah. So, just what happened though in those intervening years? Because and was there ever? Was it always? I, Leonard Maltin, would like to write about movies, or was there ever a period when you're thinking, I, Leonard Maltin, might like to make movies?
1: I tried making movies with my friends when I was in junior high school using my dad's 8 millimeter home movie camera. Mm-hmm. In those post-war b- baby boom years, home movies were very popular. Yeah. Everything I, I refer to sounds like I came from the Cro-Magnon <laughs> era, because with video and, and right. iPhones now, you can do so much. Right. There's not much you can do with a 3-minute th- load silent (laughs) movie camera. But that's not, I'm going to contradict myself. There's a lot you can do if you scale your thinking to its parameters. I couldn't. In my head I saw real movies. And so I got frustrated that they weren't turning out like real movies. They were turning out like the amateur productions that they were. But some friends and I you know, devoted a lot of time to that for a while, and I even experimented with a little stop-motion animation, very little, <laughs> when we saw how much work it was.
0: Right. People first, I think, have to be reminded, in those days, if you didn't see The Wizard of Oz once a year on TV or something, and that's a high-profile movie, you weren't going to see it, right? So how were you educating yourself about movies and, and then eventually channeling that into these fanzines?
1: Well, first television. I have to give television a lot of credit. That's a tough concept to sell to a kid. Right. Just as they said, you know, we didn't have TV. We listened to radio. And I tried to get a visual picture in my head of sitting in a room staring at a radio console. Right. That never came through. In later years, I became a radio, an old-time radio buff myself, yes. while writing a book about it. Uh, in those days, that was a foreign concept. My drawings just weren't good enough, and I knew it. Mm-hmm. I recognized that my artwork was... Not up to snuff. And so I, I started writing more. And I was a precocious reader. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at my local public library, and the librarians were really nice and very helpful. I owe a lot to libraries in general. Mm. By the time I was 12 or so, I, like other boomers, was avidly reading Forrest J. Ackerman's Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which I bought at my corner store. We called it the candy store. Right, right. Because you can get candy there, you get bubblegum there, but you could buy your comic books there too. For more than a comic book, I think it was 35 cents Mm -hmm. for Famous Monsters. But that opened a whole world to me. It's where I became acquainted with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney, Senior and Junior, and uh, the history of horror and fantasy films. As did Steven Spielberg, yeah. Stephen King, Guillermo del Toro. Lots and yeah. lots of people, you know, were were turned on by that magazine. And one and one issue, they reviewed five fanzines ah. and gave their addresses and all that. So I wrote to two of the. Magazines. One was called the Eight-Millimeter Collector, and it was published in Indiana, PA, Jimmy Stewart's hometown, uh, by a furniture dealer named Samuel K. Rubin. And the other was Film Fan Monthly, which was out of Vancouver, Canada, and edited by Daryl Davy. I sent them both articles on, today we say on spec, yeah. unsolicited. Yeah. And they published them. There was no money involved. This was all a labor of love. For, for and you're love
0: 13 for, at this yeah, time. Yeah,
1: yeah. So after they accepted the articles, I told them I was 13. Sam Rubin said, I like the article. I don't care how old you are. Mm-hmm. Send more. And Daryl Davey, who said essentially the same thing, said, and I'm 19. Ah. So in addition to continuing to publish my fanzine, which was then called Profile.
0: This is your one that had been Bergen...
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: it evolved. It evolved the profile, okay. Yeah.
1: I contributed to Film Fan Monthly for two years yeah. every month, a column. And then Daryl said to me by letter, we used, we used mail. We didn't call it snail mail then, <laughs> but we used the post office. Right, right. To send, le- I think it was four cents. The stamp was four cents. Did I say everything makes me sound sound like Methuselah, Scott? It's It's. <laughs> jarring sometimes, but Daryl said, I- "I'm holding down a full-time job now. I can't continue doing this magazine. Would you like to take it over?" I was still using a mimeograph machine, which is a foul instrument, ink under your fingernails, <laughs> and uh, he was professionally printed. He could print photographs. I said yes,
0: uh, and he was just giving it to you, or you no, bought it? No,
1: or- he he sold. Uh, well, with air quotes, he yeah. sold it to me. Right. The, Treasury was $400 and he sent me $225. So I purchased it for $175, but never took a nickel out of my own pocket to right. do it. And then the magazine surprisingly supported itself for nine years. Wow. It became my whole life. It was
0: the be all end all. Within those nine years, can you give a few examples of people who you, I believe, on the basis of writing this fanzine, were able to be entrepreneurial and and secure interviews with?
1: Well, Burgess Meredith yep. was one. Uh, there was a publication at that time that I found at my library called Current Biography. Mm-hmm. I doubt that it still exists, but it was uh, in magazine form until the end of the year. Then they would bind them all together as a as a book. And it was the uh, profiles of uh, uh, notable figures mm-hmm. in the world, statesmen, businessmen, people of all stripes, athletes. Yeah. Uh, And occasionally show business people. And among other things, it gave a a contact address. Address. Yes. Not email address. (laughs) Address. And often for the show business people, this would be an agency or their publicist or something. And I wrote to Burgess Meredith requesting an interview. And he responded. And he lived uh, in uh, Westchester County, just north of New York and uh, New York City. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, my father drove me. I was then 16. And I had the most marvelous conversation with him. He treated me as a grown-up. That was a a big deal. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't some kid. He was very generous with his time and with his answers. Now, even before that... Well, I I stood at the stage door. I I went to a matinee performance of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple on Broadway. Yeah. The current cast was Eddie Bracken. Yeah. And I think Mike Kellen. Yeah. And... (laughs) I waited at the stage door to try to grab Eddie Bracken if I could. And I waited patiently. And uh, the, the doorman finally asked what I was doing. I told him. He went inside, came back. He said, Mr. Bracken says if you come back after the matinee Saturday, he'll be happy to talk to you. That was my first interview.
0: Wow. And just to mention, it, and correct me if any of this is wrong, but from you know reading a little bit about you and stories I've heard, Buster Keaton at 14? Th- 13. 13. That was an interview. That was an encounter. An encounter, okay. I read my
1: best friend, Louis Black, later to become co-founder of the Austin Chronicle and South by Southwest. What? He and I were going to go into the city for the day, but my parents got the New York Times delivered every morning on their doorstep, and I was looking at the paper, and it said that Buster Keaton was making a film with the playwright Samuel Beckett and, and his director, Alan Schneider, alongside, this is a, almost an exact quote, if not exact. Yeah alongside a dilapidated warehouse in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge. I said to Lewis, this is our shop. we yeah. got to go. <laughs> and I had just recently purchased for like 50 cents or 25 yeah. cents a, a, a nice 8x10 still of, of Buster yeah. in a scene from a movie. I took that along. We, we took the subway to Canal Street, came up to the surface. They were clearing the land, yeah. a yeah. lot of empty lots. Yeah. But a, several blocks away, we could see lights and reflectors. And we walked over there, and there sitting in the back seat of a car reading the newspaper with his pork pie hat on the seat next to him <laughs> was Buster Keaton. And I sort of I poked my face in the back window and said, Mr. Keaton? He said, yeah. And I handed him the still. This was my icebreaker. Yeah. And I said, I just got this still of you, but I don't know what it's from. Could you identify it for yeah. me? And he said right away, "Yeah, that's from parlor, bedroom, and bath." He said, "But that's not the gal that I did the scene with. Maybe this is a rehearsal shot." Mm-hmm. I said, "Ah, okay." I said, "Would you mind signing it for me?" No. So he signed it, and I guess I introduced Lewis, and we we retreated. Yeah, I wouldn't have known then how to continue
0: a conversation. No, but that's. I mean, the fact that at thirteen you knew, I mean, had you you'd seen a bunch of Buster Keaton films at that point already? Yeah.
1: Well, yes, uh, I, I was collecting eight uh, millimeter prints. Yes. So I, Cops and the Balloonatic were my t- two uh, favorite shorts because those are the ones that I own copies right.
0: of. So it's uh, you're the age of 17, senior year of high school, known, I guess, amongst your community as the guy who's already writing fanzines for years. Can you connect the dots to how you then meet Patrick O'Connor and what came of that meeting?
1: I'm walking down the corridor of uh, my high school, Teaneck High School, A very nice woman who taught English, but I didn't have for any classes, named Jackie Egan, stopped me. She said, I love what you're doing, and I have a friend who's an editor at Signet Books, Mm -hmm. and I think the two of you would really hit it off. Here's his phone number. Call him and make a date and go to meet him after school one day. I said, okay. Yeah. And I did just that. And, of course, I didn't know what that might lead to. I had fantasies in my head of, you know, writing books for him, doing whatever mm-hmm. came along. And I went to see him, and I brought some copies, of course, of the of the magazine. As we were breaking the ice, he said, what's that you've got? I said, well, th- that's the magazine I published. He said, oh, I love your magazine. How he knew it, I don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't bother to ask. Right, right. Had Jackie shown it to him? Had he been a subscriber when he was at another publishing company? He moved around a bit. I don't know. Right. But he asked me if I knew of a book called Movies on TV by Stephen Scheuer, edited by Stephen Scheuer. I said, yes, I use it all the time. He said, well, what do you think of it? And I said, well, I think it's okay as far as it goes. (laughs) Chutzpah, you know, that I (laughs) I marvel at myself. Right. (laughs) He said, what would you do differently? Yeah. I said, well, he only lists like two cast names. He's got to give more, more names than that. He doesn't list the director. I'd, li- I'd list the running time so you could find out if the local TV station is cutting it to ribbons. Mm-hmm. And whether it's in black and white or color, which was relevant in 1967 yep. more than it is today. And I rattled off a whole bunch of this stuff because I really knew that book inside and out. And he said, well, how'd you like to do it? I said, do what? He said, I'm looking for someone to edit a rival book. You want to do it? I said, yeah. (laughs) I swear to you, this is true. Patrick colored the story uh, in different ways. We we reached the same conclusion, but that is exactly what happened. It sounds like a B movie. That's amazing. And and, uh, that day we sort of shook hands, so to speak, and then a contract had to be drawn up. Mm -hmm. And the contract was drawn up for Film Fan Monthly. So my father didn't have to co-sign it as I was a minor. Looking at it now, I realized it's probably probably, probably was it still invalid, right? Because right. I was under eighteen, right? Right. So he said, "So what are you going to do now?" I said, "Well, I've been accepted to NYU for this fall." He said, "Why are you going to college? I just gave you a job." Right. I said, "Yeah, but I'm supposed to go to college. <laughs> I was a straight arrow, right, kid. Right, you know, you right. do what you're, what you're right. supposed to do." And I'm glad I went. Yeah. To NYU, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a great four years there.
0: What was the focus of your study there, and also, how much realistically were you focused on? schoolwork versus all this other work that you now had on your plate
1: well uh, high school work once i once i acquired film fan monthly yeah high school work took a distant second <laughs> second place i managed to get by yeah college was another story but i was not a film major uh tish had not been established right. yet Tisch school of the arts they had no film study undergraduate program they had a filmmaking program with was not my interest. Mm -hmm. So uh, I became a journalism major, which turned out to be a very good choice uh, because all those courses were taught by working journalists. We were in New York after all. And I learned lessons from them that still ring in my ears. And then they let me cherry pick film courses for credit. Oh, wow. Uh, Had I been there just a few years earlier... I could have had Martin Scorsese as one of my teachers, Amazing. as my friend Alan Arkish did. Right, right. And uh, But I took some good courses, and I'm glad I had the chance to do that. And I became the entertainment editor of our daily newspaper. We had a, a very, very professional daily newspaper, called, which was then called the Washington Square Journal, Monday through Thursday. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I became entertainment editor in my, my sophomore year, that meant I had to spend one night every week at the uh, type shop, working with, with Linotype and, and doing page forms. What a great experience that was. And again, out of the past.
0: Well, and I guess that would have been that that college newspaper, the first place where reviews, proper reviews of yours yeah. actually were printed, right? That's true. That's the first time I, I actually had to write a movie review. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, so just to keep the chronology straight, 67, I think, is when you had that meeting that, all right, you want to do a book, go do the book. Yeah. 68, you you graduate from high school and go off to NYU. And 69 is when that first edition, which I happen to have in my hand here, uh, came out. Now, that, that it was not, at that time, Leonard Maltin's annual movie guide. This was called TV Movies, Everything You Want to Know, about more than 8,000 movies now being shown on TV. This is edited by Leonard Maltin. 1969. But I guess I want to ask you, the work leading up to the publication of this, 8,000 reviews. Now, was this you doing 8,000? Did you assemble a team? How did that work? Patrick O'Connor, my editor, said to me, I'm going to give you X
1: dollars. Try to have some left, left over when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> it was good advice because I did have to hire people. Yeah. I had to hire people who had seen a lot of movies right. and who had the, uh, the skill set to do these capsule telegraph-style reviews. So I wrote a lot of them, Mm -hmm. but hardly all. And so I've always been uh, buoyed by a a
0: great team. And I know that in subsequent years, um, as the guide took off, you've been very good about acknowledging. I mean, some of these people are journalists who we now also know, like uh, Pete Hammond and Joe Layden. So let me ask you about why it was called TV movies. This was not about... Ma- Today we think of TV movie, that's a movie right. of the week, a made-for-TV it,
1: it was the worst title in the world. <laughs> but Stephen Shore had used up the two best titles. Yeah. Uh, movies on TV, right. which was really what a book like that should be called. Right. And uh, he had a syndicated uh, service called TV Key. Mm-hmm. TV Key Movie Guide, which mm-hmm. is very close to being TV Movie Guide. Yeah. So he used up the two titles that were... Most descriptive of what this book was, and we settled with TV movies unhappily. Yeah, but but there it was. There. It was. And when the book came out, the people at uh, New American Library, of which Signet was a one one line of uh, publishing, uh, hired several really good, sharp eyed film buffs to proofread the copy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned about double checking and triple checking right. the importance of details.
0: Well, I read that uh, for reasons that I'll leave it to you to explain. At least in that first edition from 1969, maybe subsequent editions as well, did you insert a fake movie? Yes, I will
1: confess now because the statute of limitations (laughs) has run out. I did it at the behest of uh, Jim Parrish, who who did a lot of the heavy lifting on that first edition. We noticed some of Shoria's reviews were the same as the reviews in the BIB book, the Broadcast Information Bureau. Uh, handbook for for TV programmers I don't know who took them from whom right. but we we made extra sure that yeah. we didn't even inadvertently copy I mean if you're writing a short review of an, of a B movie from 1946 uh, a man murders his wife and, and takes it on the lamb how many ways can you right. say that <laughs> we made sure we said it differently right and uh, which was good because Shoyer tried to or threatened to sue uh, sue me really yeah. He called Patrick. Well, he got put through to Patrick, who was my editor. Yeah. And Patrick called me in a, not in a panic, but with concern, he called me. I said, you can rest easy. We made sure not to even copy a phrase from his book. He came in, they showed him part of our manuscript, and uh, grumbling, he left. (laughs) But we didn't put him out of business. He continued doing that book for a
0: long time. Now, so that people now think of Your Movie Guide is an annual publication. But just for the record, those first few years. Well, the first book
1: was just, that
0: was a book. Yeah.
1: It was not intended to be uh, a periodically published event of any kind. uh, And it, it sold modestly. And I heard nothing on the subject for four to five years during
0: which you were writing other books while still well, in yes. school. Now, yes.
1: Now the door was open at that publishing house, right. and I sold them an idea called Movie Comedy Teams, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they bought it. I didn't think that would be a commercial enough idea for them, but they liked the idea. Yeah. And I had a wonderful time writing that researching that. Summer was coming. I've got <laughs> off from school again, yeah. and I pitched a book of director interviews, and they said, No, but we are looking for a book about cameramen. Yeah, why? I don't know why they were looking yeah. for a book about Cameraman, <laughs> uh, and I said, "Well, I don't know anything about that." So I, you know, I, I let it sl- let it slip. A few weeks went by, and I w- wasn't getting anything else on my calendar. I said, "Well, who am I to turn down a concrete idea or offer?" Right. So I turned to my hero, William K. Everson, and I said, "What? What do I do?" He said. Go out to L.A. and visit the ASC. American they're, they're, Society of Sumitars. Yeah, right. their clubhouse. Yeah. The old-timers sit around and love to talk. Right. And, and you'll have no trouble at all. Well, I, I didn't trust to just sit around. I called yeah. and spoke to Arthur C. Miller, three-time Academy Award winner, uh, whose book I also read. He wrote a book with Fred Balsopher. Uh They were both veterans uh, from the teens mm-hmm. onward. And uh, Mr. Miller could not have been more generous. He, not only did he promise me an interview, he promised to call and arrange other interviews for me. And I wound up interviewing five great cinematographers yeah. who, who, whose combined careers uh, spanned the entirety of motion picture yeah. business. Yeah. And I, I soaked it all up like a sponge. I still wasn't dr- driving, so my friend David, the late David Kiraketti, who later became known for his Book on Mitchell Lysen, which I actually got published, yeah. and his great book on costume design. Yeah. He he ushered me around town and coached me in some of the some of the subjects that yeah. I was going to have to deal with.
0: Well, you had, I mean, just this constant stream of books in those years, and I was very industrious. Amazing, yeah. I mean, the the great movie shorts. Um, and my first hardcover book yes uh, eventually another great one that i people still talk about uh, of mice and magic the history of animated cartoons on and on but i guess i just want to go back because you mentioned um william k everson who some of our listeners may not have heard of but he bob thomas a number of people you've described as different sorts of mentors to you yeah. over the years maybe you can contextualize that a little bit
1: Well, Bill Everson was a film historian, teacher, author, and collector. He left his collection to NYU, which deposited uh, his 16mm films uh, at the George Eastman House, now called the George Eastman Museum Mm -hmm. in Rochester, New York. And it's a unique collection because a lot of them were one-of-a-kind prints of not only classic films and famous films, but lots and lots of obscure, unknown films from the silent era onward he ran a secretive film society named after one of his one of his colleagues theodore huff who wrote uh the first real biography of charlie chaplin the first book i first film book i ever bought yes for 10 cents at (laughs) at a library book sale getting to go to that again age 13 getting to go to that film society was a life-changing experience for me. People who, who didn't meet Bill or hear him speak in a sometimes garbled way, uh, his enunciation left something to be desired. <laughs> he just opened doors, opened minds. There's so many performers, so many directors I would not know about had I not been exposed to them by Bill Everson. Which were screenings essentially at his home? No, at the film, at the Theater Huff Society, okay. Okay. which was... it. At first, in a rented room on yeah. Union Square, yeah. and then moved to the School of Visual Arts on East 23rd Street, yeah. an amphitheater room. He used to score silent films with a portable record player, and he he became very adept at at uh, fading out, fading in, uh, so you didn't ever hear the needle drop. Right, right. He used the score from Spellbound. He used the score from The Big Country, uh, <laughs> and he did a very
0: good That's job. Great. Now Bob Thomas was with the AP, their Hollywood correspondent, for decades, starting in the 40s.
1: More than 50 years. Yeah. Now, how
0: did you and he cross paths? I
1: was writing and editing Film Fan Monthly, and one morning on the Today Show, he appeared promoting his new book, King Cone, a wonderful biography of Harry Cone, the despotic head of Columbia Pictures. It would be a different book if it was written today, because today no one blanches at using foul language in right, print. Right. In, in those days, there was a little more decorum, and uh, so he had to soften yeah. some of the anecdotes. <laughs> but all of that was primary original research. It's been copied yeah. and uh, plagiarized, referred to ever yeah. since. Yeah. But, so I, I called Putnam's, I think was his publisher, and asked if I could get an interview with him for Film Fan Monthly. And they said, uh, he has some time late this afternoon. Can you come in to meet him at the Oak Room of the Plaza Hotel? I said, yes, indeed. <laughs> and I put on my one jacket. Right. <laughs> I don't remember if I wore a tie or not. I, I was trying to look grown up. Right, right. Met him and uh, had a nice chat with him. And he took a shine to me. And thereafter, every time he was in New York, he would call. And he was then also editing a magazine for the Directors Guild called Action. Mm-hmm. And anytime there was a New York based story, he threw it my way. So uh, I interviewed John Cromwell. Wow. Uh, I interviewed H.C. Uh, Potter. I interviewed these were veteran sure. directors. Unforgettably, I visited the set of Sesame Street because he wanted me to do an article about John Stone, its original director. And I sat in the green room with Joe Raposo as they watched the first rendition of Rubber Ducky being videotaped. Right. And I, I was invited to lunch by Jim Henson and Frank Oz before they were Jim Henson and right. Frank Oz. And I wish I'd paid more attention. Right. But
0: it was a wonderful day. And I think you've said, and I read one once, that Bob also gave you some valuable perspective about yes. people in this business.
1: Bob, who whose father had been a publicist. His father was Thomas Ince's publicist, oh, wow. in fact. Bob, who grew up in and around uh, Hollywood, said to me he had no friends in show business. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, no, I I know a lot of people, and I have a lot of business contacts, but I know the difference between that and friendship, and uh, I have no friends in show business. The one person he was really friendly with was Ken Murray, Mm -hmm. the comedian and home movie guy, and Ken was very close to Billy Gilbert which got me my first ever interview on my first trip to Los Angeles. <laughs> when would that have been, that first trip to LA? Yeah, 1969. Wow. Bob also showed me, and I'll never forget this. Yeah. He had a very slim portable typewriter. Yeah. And he said, this is early payola. I said, what do you mean? He <laughs> said, look at the keyboard. And the keyboard of this typewriter, had, in red letters, D, I, T, and S, for duel in the sun, <laughs> David O. Selznick's super duper. That was
0: their swag. western. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now you're a young guy, graduated from college, I guess in seventy two. Um, by which point you've had a, a book published. Your work, at least one, multiple Several. books. You're uh, but watching movies, writing about movies. It's kind of a solitary existence in a lot of ways. Not particularly conducive to meeting. People of well, the opposite the, the, sex. the Theater
1: off Society ha- had a very interesting demographic makeup. Yeah. There, there, there were a fair number of, of gay attendees, mm-hmm. many of whom became lifelong friends, mm-hmm. but a number of guys who I will call asexual. Yep. They sort of uh, lived their life through the, mo- the movies yeah. and becoming knowledgeable. Yeah. There was more knowledge in that room than
0: in any library. Who were some of the stand There were some really... Wasn't Bogdanovich at these? And, no.
1: No? No. Uh, Peter was writing program notes for the New Yorker That's Theater, right. though, Tell which was here. my home away from home. Okay. And Jules Pfeiffer did uh, drawings for, for right. some of those notes, which I just loaned to Toby Talbot Yes. Uh, for, for a book she was doing. No, there were no notables, really, okay. uh, at the Huff Society. Bill was showing the silent version of Ben-Hur, which was a very difficult film to see in that time, and a couple of... Uh, representatives of MGM showed up to shut him down. And he talked them into sitting there and watching it before they seized the print.
0: (laughs) I believe it was through these sorts of film activities that you were always engaged in at that time that you met somebody pretty important, I believe, and ended up in March 75 getting married to. How did you and Alice Tlusty is that what her made a name? It's, it's an odd name. Tlusty.
1: TL is not a sound.: Right, that no. exists in the English language. Polish origin. My dear friend Herb Graf, who was the also a great friend of Bill Everson's, by day was a Schmata salesman, uh, and a good one. His avocation was, was uh, film collecting and, uh, and lecturing about movies. And I was a guest lecturer in his evening class at NYU. Alice approached me that night, and I, did, I was not responsive. So she figured I was either gay right. or spoken for. Right. Neither of which was true. Right. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why I, I didn't didn't uh, react to her uh, more. But uh, she said to her at the end of the course, "I love movies. I want to see more. I want to learn more. Uh, but I don't have any money." She was just a working stiff. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I'll, "I'll introduce you to somebody who gets paid to watch movies. Right. Not me." Right. But a, a, friend, a good friend of mine named John Kachi, C-O-C-C-H-I, mm-hmm. who was like a walking encyclopedia. He, he invited her to come to the Theater Huff Society mm-hmm. one night when they were, Bill was going to show two silent films. And he, he left early. He didn't feel well. He left before the show began. He said, oh, look out for that girl Alice who came <laughs> to my class. You remember her? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, you'll see her. There no other women. You're right. In in that group You've you've heard of Football widows There were a lot of Film buff widows too (laughs) And when she came in I waved at her And she came We sat together So it wasn't a date Right But we sat together And watched Maurice Turner's Film, the whip, a film directed by Paul Byrne, called Open All Night, Adolf Monchu. That was our; those are our first films together.
0: That's and here we are, almost fifty years. Yeah, later. 40, yeah, forty-nine years ago. I think a, a another huge moment for you, obviously, is st- something that started in May of 1982 when you become the lead movie critic for Entertainment Tonight, um, the only movie, critic. the only movie critic. And ironically, if this is if my information's correct. Your first movie that you reviewed for ET was ET. No, I don't think it was the first. It was among the among first. the first. Among the first. But just how did this even get going? There were, I guess, at that point on TV. I don't even. There was Gene Shalit and, and jo- I don't and Joel know, Siegel and Joel Siegel. Not yet. Siskel and Ebert. No. Right? No. They may have been on the air locally Locally, yeah In Chicago
1: Very simple, straightforward answer to that I was lucky I had a new book out Called The Great Movie Comedians yep. And I was lucky enough To get booked on the Today Show I'd been yep. on once before Yeah, They had me back And Gene Shalit was going to do the interview And they always do a pre-interview mm-hmm. To gauge how interesting your answers are going to be okay. And Gene came into the green room and said Do I have to stick to this list? I said, no, ask me anything And we had a very loose, lively conversation Mm -hmm. about comedians. Unbeknownst to me, 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, a guy saw that segment and called the newly installed executive producer of Entertainment Tonight, which was considered to be foundering in in its first year. And that was Jim Bellows, Mm -hmm. somewhat legendary, the legendary newspaper editor who uh, most recently ran the L.A. Herald Examiner. And... uh, so I saw this guy on the Today Show. You ought to check him out. So I got a phone call. The phone rings in our apartment in New York. I work, was working at home. Mm-hmm. Alice picked up the phone, and uh, he said, "May I speak to Leonard Malton?" And she said, "Who may I say is calling?" Mm-hmm. He said, "Bruce Cook from Entertainment Tonight." And she said, "May I ask what it's in reference to?" Yeah. He said, "Employment." <laughs> she said, "Yours or his?" <laughs> He said, his. She said, I'll put him right on. <laughs> you know, he was he was very pleasant, but a little vague about what, what they wanted. But they wanted me to audition. Mm-hmm. Sure, fine. I, I never had ambitions of doing anything on TV, particularly. Mm-hmm. Then he called again that, that Monday, Monday or Tuesday of the following week. He said, we decided it would be better if you came out here. Could you come out here? Uh, to L.A. T- tomorrow? Tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, okay. I had a terrible cold. Mm-hmm. Terrible cold. Would not have flown otherwise. And, uh... I flew by myself on Pan Am. Everything is old. (laughs) Everything is ancient and obsolete in my frame of reference. Uh, Flew out here, and the next day was shown into Jim Bellow's office. Uh, We were at Merv Griffin's place, TAV on Vine Street. Uh, They used Merv Griffin's Theater. Actually, and um, so Jim Bello said, uh, "So we know, you know, we brought you out here to do movie reviews. Can you can you do two movie reviews tomorrow morning?" And at that moment, my mind flashed back. I've told this story before, but it's true. To what I'd read about silent movie days, when first thing in the morning, the assistant director would go to the front gate, and there'd be a little crowd gathered there, and he'd say, "You can you ride a horse?" (laughs) And of course, you said yes. Right. If you want to make five bucks. Right. Otherwise, it was three bucks to just you know be part of a crowd. So he said, so can you do two movie reviews tomorrow morning? I said, yes, sir. And fortunately, he, uh, he gave me a segment producer uh, named Steve Pasquet, who showed me the ropes, how to prepare a review to incorporate a film clip, continue the film clip with a voiceover. And the next morning, I showed up and sat in a seat in Merv Griffin's studio theater, he was still doing his talk show at the time. And uh, I did these two reviews. I had, it happens. I had just seen two movies that were about to open. Uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Steve Martin. And I don't remember what the other one was. Mm-hmm. I think it was Grease 2. Okay. Might have been Annie. Mm-hmm. And I, I apparently did okay. Yeah. And the the, current, the line producer was Vin DeBona. And Vin said, well, if it was up to me, I'd hire you right now. He said, but it's not up to me. The Paramount execs have to weigh in on this. And th- at that time... Michael Eisner and Barry Diller, and those folks were running Paramount. It was Diller who had lured Jim Mm Bellows to to this job. idea of a fresh challenge. Anyhow, I flew home Thursday. That was Memorial Day weekend, and we flew to Columbus, Ohio, for the Cinevent Film Buff Gathering. Mm -hmm. So on Saturday, I'm in the dealer's room looking at stills and posters, and a guy says, "Uh, hey, you're good on TV last night. I said, what? (laughs) I said, doing a movie review? He said, yeah. They had run one of the reviews without telling me.
0: That's crazy.
1: Now, mind you, I'd signed a release. I was going to be paid after minimum, but they could have told me. Yeah, (laughs)
0: exactly.
1: And it was the weekend. There was no one to call. And Monday was the holiday, Memorial Day. We flew home on Monday. And in those days, uh, voicemail was a reel-to-reel tape machine. It was full. Oh, my God. Relatives I hadn't heard from in a long time, (laughs) old friends. And one lucid friend who said they introduced you as their new movie critic. So when I got hold of Bruce Cook on the phone, I said, does this mean I got the job? He said, no. But we figured the review was current. Might as well use it. Right. Okay. Still waiting to hear back, Paramount Brass. And then that Thursday they did it again. They ran the other review without telling me. So I've always said, if that's how they treat you before you're hired, you can't complain that it's a crazy place to work once you are hired.
0: Being on national TV on a regular basis, not something you had sought out, but in front of a large audience in in those days larger than it would be today uh, when everything's so fragmented, but how markedly and in what ways most significantly did it change your life and career? I think geography was certainly...
1: Part of it, right? Well, I commuted for a year and a half Okay. because the, the, their contracts were short term, 13 weeks. They had the right to pick me up, but I didn't have the right to, you know, yeah. break off. It's a one-way street. Everything was a learning experience for yeah. me. They offered me a contract, but no increase over after minimum I was getting paid, which which was for an author, yeah. good money, yeah. comparatively speaking, because those books that I worked on, I would have done better working at Arby's behind the <laughs> counter monetarily, Right. You know? So I, uh, on one Friday, they said, either sign the contract or don't show up. And I had a wonderful lawyer, still our lawyer. Yeah. And I said, what what, what do we do? He said, well, he says, you can play chicken, yeah. but only if you're willing to lose. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to walk away from it, then you can call their bluff. Yeah. But if, if you want to continue doing this, you have to play it safe. Right. And that's what I did. Yeah. Learning experience.
0: Yeah. And for years and years, I mean, until... 2010, I think you were you were there there again. 2012. I was there
1: 30 years 30 altogether. Years, 30, okay. they, they 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 used me less and less in in the later years as the show became more tabloid oriented. Okay. It changed my life in every conceivable way. Yeah, I did commute for a year and a half, and then uh, finally uh, Alice said enough because what happened is I'd get back to New York. And she'd be ready to go out and do things. And I just wanted to collapse. Yeah, sure. It was fine at first because I would be out here one week, and home two weeks. But then it got busier and busier. So we made the move. Temporarily. We sublet our apartment. Temporarily. And And we've been here 40 years.
0: (laughs) And, And again, just important for people, I think, to follow the chronology. Your first movie guidebook, not called Leonard Maltin's movie guidebook, came out in 69. The second came out in 74. The third came out in 78 and then every other year until 86. Why in 86 did it become an annual and suddenly have your name and well, face the, on the
1: cover? The greatest moment of my publishing career yeah. came one day when my editor at uh, it was now New American Library, NAL, called me. I was at my desk at, at, at Entertainment Tonight when I got this call, and he said, uh, we've just had our sales meeting for the fall, and we'd like to make two changes to the the cover of the book, if it's okay with you. I said, what are they? He said, we'd like to put your name above the title
0: and your picture on the cover. <laughs> I said, it's okay with me. <laughs> and this was because, through Entertainment Tonight, you'd become a, a real brand. I had. I had become a, a known quantity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I,
1: some of my books were, were fairly successful, mm-hmm. but they were a speck. Yeah. of sand. They paled in comparison yeah. to television exposure. It was an incredible experience to be on that show. Again, I I put in a, two years on some of those books. Yeah. The immediacy of television was very exciting and I, I, I learned to, to edit videos. I didn't do the physical mm-hmm. editing, but I sat as the director of the of the, the editing session. I started to write feature pieces and edit them for, for the show
0: and that was incredibly invigorating. All while still updating the book. The Movie guide each year.
1: Oh, yeah. Three things happened simultaneously. I got on television, home video, Mushroom, and the book, which had been in the back of the store with other books about show business, suddenly got featured in a lot of stores. And the stores came to expect it on a regular basis. And finally, in, in the middle of that decade, my editor said, you know, the fallow year when it doesn't come out is sort of wasted. Yeah. I think it should be an annual. I said, I didn't welcome the additional workload, but I knew it had to be an annual. And we bent ourselves into pretzels to do that on a yearly basis. Because a conventional book, it said, it's like a baby. Like nine months to get it edited and proofread, typeset, bound and printed and shipped you know, to, to stores. And we used to do that in two and a half months.
0: Now, the exposure from Entertainment Tonight from having your name and picture on the book, you became about as well-known a film critic as anyone, right? And I I wonder... How did you acclimate to that? Not everybody's in, not everybody enjoys being recognized or approached or all that. How did you feel about it?
1: I was okay with it because it's not like I was a rock star. Nobody wanted to paw me or you know or had to tear a piece of my clothing. Uh, <laughs> so it was mostly people saying, "Hey, seen any good movies lately?" Right. Or, or debating me on uh, <laughs> you know my opinion of of a given movie. It's been pleasant. Like other celebrities, modest nature. The occasional head waiter giving you a better table <laughs> or being upgraded at a hotel uh, that's that's very nice sure so my level of celebrity has been has been fine yeah Jessie tells me, my daughter Jessie yep. tells me, that she was taken aback when people would come to us in a restaurant. She felt uh, violated. I would never be rude to anybody. As she grew up, she became acc- accustomed to yeah.
0: that. Well, you bring her up, and I, I wanted to bring her up as well, because 86 is the year your movie guide went annual, but it was also the year that after some very difficult years that you've talked about with, with Alice, like a lot of uh, challenging things trying to get pregnant. Three miscarriages. Ugh. One of them
1: unbearable duration and a lot of heartache, uh, but then success. And she was our miracle baby, eleven years in the making. And today she's sort of your partner in crime. I mean, right? She is, yes. And uh, she does not aspire to be, but she's been around it. She's just soaked up so much by osmosis. Yeah. You know that uh, she's, you know, she's pretty savvy. Yeah. And she's certainly more savvy in, in terms of
0: social media and navigating that world than I am. Well, in the Home stretch here. I want to just talk about some sort of big picture things if we sure. can. In 2014, you guys published the 2015 movie guide, which you acknowledge going into it. This is going to be the last one. Mm-hmm. Can you explain just contextualize whose decision was it why did it happen how did you feel about it
1: it was my decision in conjunction with alice who is my partner in all things we kind of subsidized the book in its in its last years because sales were 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 dropping rather precipitously all because of computers yeah internet imdb i'm friendly with Carl needham so you know i use imdb yeah Everybody uses IMDb. At first, I fought it. I said, no, no, but but we give you an opinion, and we make it user-friendly by telling you the leading cast, not just the order in which they were appeared on screen. I had all sorts of uh, comebacks, but they didn't hold water with most people. We had a machine, a well-oiled machine, that uh, involved a lot of contributors and a, and a lot of fail-safes, and the production people at, uh, at Penguin were fantastic. They knew that the book was consulted by a lot of people in the trade, mm of all kinds. The New York Times used my book uh, because we were so persnickety about spelling actors' names correctly. I'm the guy who walked up to Daniel Day-Lewis. I
0: heard about this. Yeah,
1: and asked him if there was a hyphen in his name. <laughs> and he said, I'm happy to set the record straight. There is. I said, thank you, sir. Uh, and then somebody said to me, I don't think there used to be. I think he adopted that one. Ah, uh, interesting. His name is Mr. Day-Lewis. Yeah. We went to great lengths to achieve accuracy, and we had the benefit of continually updating every, every year. Any mistakes could be eradicated. Right. That was a boon to us. But it was, the handwriting was on the wall, so
0: it was with great reluctance. We pulled the plug. Now, I think another thing that happened in 2014 that you didn't elect to make public for a few more years until 2018 was the fact that you had a a diagnosis, right?
1: Yes, I was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's disease. And um, it was diagnosed at first as a benign tremor. My left hand was was shaking. And so I took to explaining to people at uh, Q&As when I was on stage, look, I have this tremor in my left hand, my left arm. It doesn't bother me. I hope it doesn't bother you. Just to quell any potential rumors or buzzing. And then a year later, I went for my physical with my uh, longtime internist and he picked up on my movement. And uh, we established with a neurologist that I had Parkinson's. I went public because Tim Apello called me. He was writing a piece about Alan Alda going public on the same topic for uh, AARP. Yeah, And I looked, uh, uh, Alice and Jesse were in the room with me. I looked at them and they looked at me and I said, and I have it too. Why, you know, why hide it?
0: Why pretend? How would you say it has affected your day-to-day life? I guess now almost a decade since... Diagnosed.
1: And Alice is convinced I had it before it was properly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. As you saw just now, I have to take my uh, dopamine mm-hmm. like clockwork, mm-hmm. uh, because as my doctor first explained it to me, it, it's like a gas tank. When it's empty, it's empty. There's mm-hmm. no half life. So you know that, that's an obvious uh, change. But it's a but it's not a, an intrusive one. Not, not terribly intrusive. My speech as you have heard, its sometimes hesitant where it would, would be more free-flowing on better days. Parkinson's is, is very insidious it, it, it can affect almost any bodily function swallowing exacerbates certain arthritis symptoms
0: but I'm still typing say you're pretty prolific for anyone let alone someone who's got that. On their plate as well. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Well, and they caught it early. Mm-hmm. That helps too. Most of the time, it's not something where you're feeling pain or, or things oh, like that. Oh, no, no, no. It's,
1: uh, it can be a nuisance, yeah. but uh, but uh, it's it's a fairly minor nuisance. Sure. It's. I think it's tougher for my wife because it frightens her. Because it's a degenerative disease. It's not going to get better. But I, I'll be happy if I can just maintain a status quo as long as I can.
0: On a much lighter note, these last few just rapid-fire things. When were you last without a beard?
1: Oh, this is this is funny because a friend of mine works with the with Dick Cavett and licenses his uh, footage, and he found the episode where I was on the Dick Cavett late-night show and burned me a, a DVD. And when I showed it to my wife and daughter, they shrieked <laughs> because they'd never seen me clean-shaven. They'd seen yeah, the, yeah. Y- younger pictures of me. Sure. But this is when I was 20, and uh, I hadn't yet grown. I did it in college. Okay, that's when it started. But this was me au naturel.
0: Right. What do you like to eat and drink at the movie?
1: Um, Popcorn, no butter. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I wanted drenched in butter. Right, right. Nowadays, no butter. And if I'm being naughty, uh, uh, (laughs) raisinets.
0: Over the years, which review or reviews of yours did you get the most shit for?
1: Oh, well, it's either Taxi Driver or um, Blade Runner.
0: Two stars and 1.5 stars out of four. Yeah. You just, those are the ones where you felt definitely than the consensus. I did. How about which film have you changed your mind about the most since you first saw it? Alien. I was out of town on a book tour, so I didn't have Alice to
1: grab. Right. I chewed my jacket instead, and um, I just didn't have a good time. Sure. Because I'm I'm a wimp. (laughs) Uh, Jump scares. Right, right. I'm, I'm I'm a patsy for jump scares. Sure. I could respect it, but I didn't like it. Sure. But 20 years later, when Ridley Scott did a little bit of tweaking yeah. and they reissued it theatrically, I saw it again. And in those 20 years, it had been ripped off so much. Yeah. And not very well, right. mostly. I thought this level had risen for, you know, some of those now scares. You like yeah. And I, I said, well, this, this is a masterful piece of uh, filmmaking,
0: storytelling. And you would go and update a review in the movie game, Yeah, right? Yeah, I did. What's the shortest review you ever wrote? Oh, that got me in the Guinness Book of World (laughs) Records.
1: Uh, I didn't submit it. A a, a reader submitted it. It's for the 1948 musical, Isn't It Romantic? And my review was,
0: no. (laughs) What today do you regard as your favorite movie, the one you'd save if the world was on fire? Casablanca. Always, now and always. Least favorite movie, the one that if it burned would make you think the world was a slightly better place. Oh, well, uh, it's
1: Maximum Overdrive, Stephen King's movie. He complained, rightly, that he was tired of other people messing up his stories right. and
0: novel when they
1: translated to the film. But this one he directed himself, <laughs> so, so, so he has no one else to blame.
0: Who's the interview that got away, the person you most wish you could have spoken with but never did?
1: Oh, well, it's a tie between Federico Fellini mm-hmm. and Stanley Kubrick.
0: Not both Walt of, Disney.
1: Both of Oh, no. Walt Disney is, is the fantasy interview. If yes. I, if I could go back in time, yes. that's that would be my, my number one. Number one. But these two were in the possibility stage. Yes. yes. Fellini was going to be coming to Montreal, I think, mm-hmm. and that trip got canceled. And Kubrick had approved my unveiling the first trailer, the teaser trailer, for Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. and. This was supposed to be a building block toward going to
0: London and talking to him there. Which living film critic and which dead film critic do you hold in the highest regard?
1: Todd McCarthy. I've always felt that. I've always felt that uh, he's underrated because he he spoke to a niche audience, not consumers. But I think he's brilliant. Brilliant. He takes in so much in one viewing and then has to, on deadline, spew it out and does so 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 well. Yeah,
0: and critic's no longer with us
1: oh dear roger ebert yes you and, and, you, roger and you were ebert. close or? you know uh um, i never got to read him growing up or even when we were contemporaries because no one carried him, his reviews here in la neither paper and uh, my bergen record back home didn't ever carry his stuff only the when the internet came along yeah. and he was an early adopter you too, though, right? You were on in 96, I read. Thanks to Jim Bellows. Right. But he was really an early adopter, and he was of the belief that he should make his entire archive available. Right. And that's when I started reading him and realized what a brilliant writer he was.
0: Last one. In the age of Rotten Tomatoes, and at a time when the person with the most plum film critic job in the world, New York Times chief film critic A.O. Scott, has chosen to quit film criticism and go review books, and when Hollywood cannot even sustain popular cinemas like The Arclight Hollywood and The Landmark on Pico, Hollywood can't. What's your outlook about the future of the movies and of film criticism? I'm optimistic about the future of
1: movies because movies have always been a social activity, and I don't think that is ever really gonna change. It'll mutate, go out on a date to a movie, Married couples, get out of the house for a night, by like going to the movies. In spite of increased prices, it's still cheaper than any other form of entertainment. Go to a concert, go to a nightclub, go to a sporting event, you're just gonna spend a lot more than you will going to, to the movies. But I I, I think it's, and, and, and it's storytelling. And when there's a hot movie, as we've all seen, people show up. Give them some, something they want to see, they will show up. And film criticism? Well, film criticism is a different story. This is not an age of literacy. Reading is uh, no longer uh, valued as highly as it uh, once was. But, um, and everybody's a critic. Everybody's a critic. Saying I'm a professional only means that I occasionally get paid. <laughs> for my opinion. But uh, I think there's still a place for it. I hope, and through teaching, as you do, we create and foster an interest in it that, that it won't
0: disappear. Well, you know how highly I think of you. I can't thank you enough for doing this, Leonard. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.